Hello and welcome to Book Reviews Kill, a podcast about fantasy, sci-fi, and horror novels. I'm Evan. And I'm Chad. And you're joining us today for our recap and discussion of Leviathan Wakes, book one in The Expanse by James S.A. Corey. Chad, I think you and I might be in for quite the ride here. Oh, the Leviathan has awoke, my friend, and it is glorious. So we're going to get into this pretty quickly. And a little disclaimer for everyone, especially longtime fans of this book series, of the television series, uh, as with any extensive series that we read on the podcast, Chad and I are going to go as in-depth as we can on this book and the volumes following it, of course. But if you're listening now and you've read most or all of the books in The Expanse, if you're an Expanse expert... Please remember that here in the earlier stages, we're both likely to get some things wrong, misinterpret some characters or events, or just come across as kind of ignorant about certain things, like especially specific things. So please just bear with us. There's a lot to cover here. This series is really easy to read. I'm already oh, quite a bit through Caliban's War. But it's pretty dense, too. I mean, there's a lot of terms to learn. I was a little bit kind of out of my element there for the first, like, 50 to 100 pages, which happens with big, sprawling space opera sci-fi. It happens with epic fantasy all the time with these big, long series. There is a little bit of a learning curve. Admittedly, the, the learning curve for this isn't too bad, though. Once I got kind of all the acronyms together in pretty my Pretty good compared to yeah. other sci-fi stuff I've read. Yeah, it's definitely not too bad. Which is why it lulls you into complacency, and then all of a sudden you get to a chapter and you're like, actually, I don't, I don't know if I know what's going I've been enjoying this so much that I kind of forgot to really pay attention to the nuts and bolts, you know, but that's okay. Yeah, and this book in particular seemed to kind of rely on some more mystery box type stuff. I felt like I was being led around in the dark for a little while before I really had a good idea of what was going on. And um, I mean, even when I finished it, I had to really think about it for a second and, and make sure like, okay, yeah, I think I understand everything everyone's like motivations um not just the characters but these big organizations yeah i didn't who know who, what? who had what ship or whatever for a little while but man i'm so excited to get on with this series did it strike you a little bit like gardens of the moon and that it just kind of drops you into the story and it's like have fun it kind of did i mean it's definitely not as confusing as no. gardens of the moon but it did kind of give me that vibe of like oh okay so we're just we're throwing everything at the wall here switching povs um which i didn't really mind um but yeah the characters <laughs> we'll get into this but i i didn't really like either of the main characters <laughs> it's, it's kind of <laughs> but i loved the book it's funny how that happened um, but funny. yeah it did give me kind of like a, okay this is the first book in the series it feels like maybe the authors are just getting on their feet here and kind of figuring out what the tone of this series needs to be so crazy that there's authors yeah, it's James. Uh, James S. A. Corey is Daniel Abraham, author of The Long Price Quartet and Dagger and Coin, if you've heard of those series. And then Ty Frank, who is George R. R. Martin's assistant, apparently. Interesting. Yeah. And I don't know what else Ty Frank has written, if anything, but they are a magnificent writing duo that did such a good job with this book. I've heard it's not even close to the best book in the series, which is wild because that book <laughs> that book was a lot i'm so excited to talk about so it so so me too man me too and and helping or talking about it on the podcast always kind of helps clear up the things that i don't know because you're right it's like a lot of new people new relationships new characters they're growing there's new terms new technology new politics new corporations a uh, lot of new but i feel like i've got a pretty good handle on it and uh i'm excited 
We're going to be expanse experts by the end of this. I'm going to annoy all my friends yes. at parties who have seen the show and I can say, well, in the books. Which I want to talk to you about in a little bit here because I watched, uh, I don't really remember the show too much from a few years ago when I watched it, but I watched the first episode just like a couple days ago. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I'm it waiting to, to watch the whole thing once I'm done with the books because I'm just annoying like that. <laughs> you know? I'm not going to get ahead of myself, certainly. Yeah. I just want to do what was fresh in my brain so I can notice the differences. Cool. Well, let's get right into the recap for Leviathan Wakes. Let's do it. The book's prologue shows a woman named Julie Mao trapped in a locker aboard a ship called the Scopuli. The sounds of a ship being overtaken echo in her makeshift cell, and after eight days, she finally breaks free. When she investigates the now silent ship, she finds no sign of the crew until she stumbles upon a mass of organic material protruding out of her captain's head, which begs her for help. We then center on an ice-hauling ship called the Canterbury, en route from Saturn's rings to Ceres Station, when it encounters a distress signal hailing from a nearby asteroid. Five members of the Canterbury's crew are dispatched in a shuttle to investigate. Executive Officer Jim Holden, a former officer in the UN Navy, Chief Engineer Naomi Nagata, a belter pilot named Alex Kamal, a veteran of the Martian Navy, MCRN, Engineer Amos Burton, and medic Shed Garvey. They discover an abandoned transport vessel called the Scopuli, but find no trace of the ship's crew. Judging by the gaping hole in the Scopuli's hull, Holden's crew suspects that the ship may be a trap set by pirates, so they take the distress beacon and head back to the Canterbury. Before they can make it, an unknown stealth warship arrives, and without warning, destroys the Canterbury with nuclear weapons. Holden sends an angry message to the attacking ship, but it ignores him and departs. Based on the highly advanced technology of the warship, and the discovery that the beacon from the Scopuli is of Martian origin, the survivors suspect the MCRN of being behind the attack. Hobbled in the emptiness of space, and with no clear plan, Holden broadcasts a message out to the entire system, implicating Mars in the destruction of the Canterbury, hoping to negate any attempt to kill them as a part of a cover-up. In response, the shuttle is ordered to rendezvous with the MCRN battleship Doniger, flagship of the Mars-Jupiter fleet. En route, they receive a message from Fred Johnson, chief of Tycho Station, an engineering outpost and construction platform offering his support. Johnson has been a highly decorated commander in the UNN when he was ordered to brutally quell a Belter uprising, for which he was nicknamed the Butcher of Anderson Station. Guilt-stricken, he had resigned his commission and become an advocate for the rights of Belters. As the shuttle makes its way to the rendezvous, they are pursued by a group of unknown ships. On Ceres Station, Belter detective Joe Miller of Star Helix Security, the Earth-based private security firm responsible for policing the station, is contracted to locate Julie Mao, daughter of the wealthy magnate Jules Pierre Mao and send her back to her family on Luna against her will. When Holden's message reached Ceres, riots erupt, which leads Miller to discover that the station's riot gear is missing. 
Aboard the Doniger, the ship's captain denies any knowledge of MCRN involvement in the attack on the Canterbury, and instead suspects that one or more of the survivors from the shuttle may have bombed the Cant as an act of OPA terrorism. The unknown ships that were pursuing the shuttle ignore warnings to change course and are fired on by the Doniger. To the surprise of the Martian crew, the ships return fire and are revealed to be the same stealth ships that attacked the Cant. Despite the fact that the Doniger is one of the most advanced and deadly warships in the solar system, it is steadily overwhelmed by the mysterious enemy ships and eventually boarded. During the battle, a railgun round penetrates the hull, decapitating Shed. Realizing that the Cant survivors are the targets of the attack, a team of the Doniger's marine contingent are ordered to evacuate them. Although all of the Martian marines are killed in the process, the four surviving Canterbury crew members are able to escape aboard the corvette Tachi just before the Doniger is scuttled. Still unsure of who is trying to kill them, they decide to go to Tycho Station. There, the Cant survivors share what they've seen with Fred Johnson, who reveals that he is an influential member of the OPA. They receive new transponder codes for the Tachi from Fred, disguise the ship as a gas hauler, and rename it the Rossinante. Fred sends the Rossi, as her crew nicknames her, to Eros Station to find an OPA operative working under the pseudonym Lionel Polanski. On Ceres, Miller has noticed an exodus of criminals from the station. He also discovers that Julie Mao's father had warned her of an attack in the belt just two weeks before the destruction of the Cant. He is then confronted by Anderson Dawes, leader of the series chapter of the OPA who tells him that Julie Mao had joined the OPA and had disappeared while performing an important mission for them aboard the Scopuli. Dawes cautions Miller not to investigate the matter any further. Miller presents this information to his boss, Captain Shadid, but she also instructs him to drop the case. Miller, however, finds himself obsessing over Julie, and when he persists, he is fired by Shadid, who is revealed to be in collusion with Dawes, However, Miller is still able to access docking logs for all of the ports in the belt, which he had been granted access to before his termination. Realizing that the Scopuli was the same ship mentioned in Holden's broadcast, he is able to discern that the Rossinante is the former Tachi from its registry information, and he departs for Eros. On Eros, Miller finds the crew of the Rossi and follows them to the hotel, where Lionel Polanski was listed as a guest. In Polanski's room, they find the body of Julie Mao, covered in a strange organic growth. On her phone, Miller finds logs detailing the progression of her affliction, which seems to be fueled by exposure to energy and radiation, and the coordinates of an asteroid where one of the ships that attacked the Cant is docked. Before they can leave the station, a radiation alert is declared, and station security begins herding people into radiation shelters. Miller recognizes some of the security officers as criminals from Ceres, who are wearing the missing Star Helix riot gear. He and Holden stay behind to investigate, while the rest of the crew is sent back to the Rossi. They discover that the people in the shelters have been dosed with an unknown substance and exposed to extremely high levels of radiation. 
As they make their way to the docks, they realize that the people in the shelters were infected with the same organism as Julie, and the radiation was used to feed its rapid growth. They see the infected attacking the security forces and spreading the infection to anyone who had been able to avoid the radiation chambers. They escape as it is being overrun. Fred contacts Holden and tells him that the analysis of a data chip belonging to one of the dead marines from the Doniger reveals that the mysterious stealth ships were built on Luna. Holden makes another public broadcast sharing this information, hoping to ease the tensions created by his prior implication of the MCRN. This strategy backfires, however, and the UN, fearing that they will be blamed for the attack on the Doniger, launch a preemptive strike against the MCRN by destroying Deimos, site of a Martian military installation, which results in a standoff between the two sides. Miller and the crew of the Rossi follow the coordinates from Julie's phone and find one of the stealth ships, called the Anubis, abandoned. In the reactor room, they find that the same organic growth that was on Julie Mao's body has consumed the entire remaining crews of the Anubis and the Scopuli, whom they had taken prisoner. They find a video explaining that the organism is a biological replication mechanism created by extrasolar aliens and placed on Phoebe, which was then launched into the solar system with the intent of reaching Earth and hijacking its early biosphere in order to create something but was captured by Saturn's gravity instead, thus sparing Earth. Protogen, the corporation who had discovered the entity on Phoebe and dubbed it the Protomolecule, orchestrated its release on Eros as an experiment, tried to find out what it was designed to do. They had carried out the false flag attack on the Cant in order to start a war that would distract the solar system from what was happening on Eros. The Rossi crew nuke the Anubis and return to Tycho Station, where they discover that data is being transmitted from Eros to a secret protogen facility. They attack the station, with the Rossi destroying the two stealth ships guarding it, and Miller and Fred leading a boarding party consisting of Fred's OPA soldiers, who are able to capture it. The lead scientist, Antony Dresden, reveals that the scientists on the station had been modified to remove ethical restraints so that they could emotionlessly perform their research without empathy for the victims on Eros. He empathizes the importance of understanding the protomolecule, not only for its innate scientific value, but to protect against the clear threat presented by the aliens who created it. Realizing that Dresden's rationale is likely to be accepted by the powers that be on Earth and Mars, and his horrific research allowed to continue, Miller shoots Dresden without warning, angering Holden. He was going to get away with it, Miller explains later. He was talking us into it. All that about getting the stars and protecting ourselves from whatever shot that thing at Earth, I was starting to think maybe he should get away with it. Maybe things were just too big for right and wrong. Back on Tycho, Miller and Fred come up with a plan to destroy Eros to prevent anyone else from trying to obtain a sample of the proto-molecule. They intend to commandeer Tycho's main project, the massive Mormon generation ship, the Nauvoo, and crash it into Eros at the correct speed and angle to propel it into the sun. Miller leads a team onto the exterior of Eros to plant bombs to detonate its ports so that no one can get in and sample the protomolecule before it is destroyed. 
He then decides to stay behind and die when the others leave. Just before the Nauvoo impacts the station, the trajectory of Eros is inexplicably altered. The protomolecule has an advanced method of spaceflight that can negate G-force and inertia. Eros then sets out for Earth, the largest source of biomass in the solar system, at a speed that no human-made ship can match. Miller takes one of the bombs into the station to attempt to destroy its maneuvering capabilities. However, listening to the voices on the communication system, he realizes that Eros is being guided by Julie Mao, who believes she is piloting her racing pinnace. He finds her infected body is the host in a parasitic relationship with the protomolecule. He is able to convince her to direct Eros away from the Earth. The station crashes into the surface of Venus, where the protomolecule begins assembling a new, unknown structure. Wow, wow, wow. What a wild ride that was. I know. I feel like most books have one climax, and this one had like four. It just kept going. Like, I kept being, when they invaded Thoth, Thoth Station, I was like, oh, okay. Now we're at the end of the book. And I was like, actually, I still have like 150 uh, pages. And then it just kept going and going and, and going, now which we're was awesome. Knock a planet into the sun, yeah, which was such an awesome plan. Yeah, that was one of the parts of the book where I was just like, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, All right, cool. I'm, okay. I'm here for it. Um, let's try to get our bearings here a little bit. Was it just me or did this book not mention exactly how far into the future this is? Like this whole story? Was it? Did you figure that out or was that just not included? Should have read the first page again because I feel like I missed it where it was like in the year 2400, you know, but I... I don't remember that at all. I have no idea what year it is. I don't think that's a thing. Yeah. Um, maybe I missed it, but I'm just assuming it's like a couple hundred years. Yeah. Into the future. It, that's at least it how, might have listed how long the I feel year. Like. Uh, if somebody knows, send us a send us a message and maybe we'll find out later in this series, obviously. Yeah. It might have listed the year when it was talking about the invention of the um, Epstein drive. drive. Yeah. Yeah. The Epstein drive, which I thought was awesome. And especially how it's like, the longest lasting memorial to human advancement like with a good telescope you could still see him just cruising off because he didn't apparently invent a way to turn it off <laughs> uh what do you think about holden and miller i mean that's definitely what this book is about it seems like the their spectrum of morality is kind of most of uh, whatever you can speculate on in this book i feel like it's got like the half you know ship captain with a heart of gold uh, who's always righteous and then we've got miller over here who's like this washed up i'm too old for this shit like right semi-alcoholic um, yeah just very loser detective uh, noir type feel to it you know? yeah i mean there was definitely an obvious dichotomy between the two and that one's like a realist and the other one's so jaded by the real world that he just like is blowing f people's heads off at every turn you know anyone's just like Kind of is wrong by him. He's like, you're a criminal. I mean, I Takes wouldn't say Holden is a is a realist. I'd say he's more of an idealist. You know. Oh, he's... oh, that's what I meant to say. Did oh, okay, I say realist? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you for the no, correction. No, 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 no yeah, I meant idealist. Um, yeah. and then, uh, maybe Miller is more of a realist, but he's more just like jaded and crusty, and apparently not very good at his job anymore. Though 
that was that a weird to be... part. Yeah, what did you think about yeah. that? Like, because I didn't really get the vibe that Miller was like the office joke. I mean, maybe that was supposed to be surprising for us as well as him. Um, but yeah, he, he was doing fine. I mean, he's not the best cop, but it's like he's in kind of a gray zone legally all the time on that planet anyway. And I mean, it seems like being a security officer on an asteroid that is like a brand new colony. And I don't know. It just seems like that would be difficult and there wouldn't be like that much uh, like legal precedent for all kinds of stuff. And I don't know. He seems like he's handling it like decently, but then yeah. he's drug into Shadid's office and she's just like, you're fired. You're washed up. Get you're out of here. Fired. Yeah, and it's just like, you should have been what? looking into Julie so much. It did seem a little contradictory to me because he was like, raised there he's a native he speaks the speak you know like the belters kind of have they call it belter creole um they kind of have this like slang which i thought was really cool and creatively yeah, done interesting um but he speaks it fluently he obviously has a well uh established and network of contacts you know and can kind of talk to the people in their own language and can seems kind of like one of those guys that can get stuff done and then is assigned a bonus like special mission that maybe she was just sloughing it off onto someone who didn't have anything better to do but i i kind of felt it was presented like a you get this one because you know how to do your job and then later it was like why are you doing such a good job You're yeah fired. <laughs> i thought that was odd it's like if shadid wanted him to not do a good job on it then why give it to him at all like just to make it seem like it was getting done for the people that wanted her to do it i don't that was kind of one of the parts of miller's story where i was kind of confused like is it really just as simple as, yeah, you got to stop digging so hard. Like you're going to find something you don't like. It's like, well, then why even give him the mission at all? Like he wouldn't have even heard about it or done anything. He would have just kept doing what he was doing. I think it might have been. And like, man, he stopped the riot. There was at one point in the book, there's like a, a riot cool that scene. comes up. Yeah. He stops it real well. I mean, yeah, he shoots a guy in the leg, but he kind of needed to yell, start it with the bang to be like, make an example. So that way we don't get 200 people trampled to death. But I think that it was more of a you're pursuing Julie too much so you're fired as it was like a like you need to pick a side and it's not clear what side you're on Miller and so you're out because she was clearly in bed with the OPA as she was working with Dawes we found out later. Maybe she wanted him to like mess it up or something and then he wasn't like maybe she was counting on him to like um, kind of like convolute the case or something like that. Oh, I don't know. yeah, yeah. Um, that was that was definitely an odd part. Uh, I did I did like Miller. I liked Miller more than Holden, but I liked reading the Holden chapters more than I liked reading the Miller chapters. If that makes because sense. Holden's crew is awesome. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Amos and he's doing is way more my favorite character. Things. Yeah, Amos is my favorite character. Me too. Oh, was he really? Yeah, I like oh, Amos absolutely. A lot. Um, Amos is definitely really fun. Um, I, I like all of Holden's crew. I mean, Alex is great. They're all very distinct from each other. I think Naomi's great. Were you surprised at Holden and Naomi hooking up? Like, did that kind of no. come out of nowhere for you? Or was that something I mean, that... kind of... I want to say yes, just because I read the book so quickly. But, like, it was fairly drawn out. Like, because he had the experience on uh, Eros escaping with Detective Miller. And he was like, I'm definitely dead so many times. I'm never getting out. And he just kept thinking, like, man, I really regret not moving things forward with yeah. Naomi because I'm into point. her. And so when he finally came to, he was like, hey, I don't know when I'm going to die. So I need to make the most of it what i didn't really like was her reaction was a little 
I mean, it was appropriate for sure. Cause she was like, you've hooked up with like every person on the ship that we used to work on. And I used to like you for the first couple months, but like, then you moved on. <laughs> and then later she was, she's like, yeah, I've been like waiting for you. When are you going to make a move? It was like, he already made it. You totally shot him down. And then like, give him <laughs> flack for it later. Like, yeah, no, I've been waiting I, for you sailor. I, dis I disagree. <laughs> she didn't shoot him down. She was essentially saying like, you've had all these flings as long as I've known you. And I'm just like, not that kind of person. I don't want to just have a fling with you. So, but I guess you also said like, if you, if you ever want to sleep with me, my door is kind of open. But yeah, but I, I think, think she was trying to make it clear that like, she doesn't want to be another fling. And it's yeah. cool. I mean, like he doesn't really feel that way either, but I, I think that she was just kind of guarded against like hooking up with her commanding officer when he has a history of just kind of like, you know, it, <laughs> I love how she put it. She was kind of just like, you you're so charming, essentially, that you you don't like the the people you hook up with don't even feel like that like they need to hate you or something like that. And right, she, you're so good at even breaking up with them. That is kind of a red flag, though. On her, like it was cool yeah. of her to notice that for sure, because it's just like, man, you're gonna do that to me too. Like you're gonna break my heart, and then I'm gonna feel bad about it. You know, and, right? <laughs> so, and I guess I don't, I don't know. I see where you're coming from, actually. Now that I look at it, because she did kind of need to take the power back and be like, no, I was hurt originally by you not. Right. going for yeah. it and so she kind of yeah. needed to be like no i'm gonna do this on my terms and my time and make sure that you're serious you know yeah naomi is really cool because um there's something about the command structure on the rosante rosanante um rosanante 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 there's something about the command structure that's a little bit foggy you know it's not as <laughs> yeah. it's not as rigid uh, even there's a scene where um holden goes down to talk to amos i think and Amos is in the middle of something and he kind of just like puts his hand up and he's like, let me finish this. And like, that would never happen <laughs> yeah. in a regular ship. And so Naomi does a really good job at kind of like staying professional, uh, even past the point of starting to sleep with Holden. I mean, Naomi is really committed to her job. There's multiple parts where Holden knows, uh, at least the narrative knows and the reader knows that Naomi will kind of like switch into total professional mode and die with this ship if she has to, which is mm -hmm. awesome. I think that they did a really good job writing this crew to be loyal, but also not like blind loyalty to Holden. They just respect Holden a lot and understand that their jobs are really important on this ship. Uh, I would have really liked to see them just become a pirate ship, but that's not yeah. what this. I <laughs> for a second, it seemed like that idea was almost like Books floated. Babel out, yeah, right. Um, that would have been pretty cool, but I do like the Holden chapters. I felt like they were more interesting, more cool conversations were happening, more was going on, and then the Miller chapters were really introspective and a lot, a lot of the same feeling like over and over again. I was getting a little bit um, like fatigued with his fatigue, you know? Yeah. Um, it, it, he's not a bad character at all, but I just felt like um, things were kind of moving a little bit slow on his end until Miller and Holden um, finally met up, which was what the book needed. The whole Absolutely. chapter on uh or the couple chapters when they're on Eros and the zombies appear and everything. Oh. That was my favorite part of the entire book. They had to work yeah, together. Yeah, top three. They were, they were trying to figure out what was going on while I was trying to figure out what was going on, which was really nice to read. Um, I re <laughs> they really just threw zombies at us. It was like I oh, turned the page. because, And I think you have the same copy as me. It's like... They're looking around, and then you turn the page, and it just says, and that's when the, the vomit zombies came the out. The vomit <laughs> zombies. They just came out, like, so shambling, yeah. and, like, I mean, that whole 
series was amazing. So we get this cool, like kind of subterfuge, like da na spy thing with like Miller tailoring Holden and crew right when they get on Eros. And then they go into the hotel. We have an awesome shootout. Whoop, that's super fun. Then we see Julie Mao, cool mystery, kind of solved like, where, where she's at anyway, but weird. a whole new mystery has started. Yeah. It's horrific. So you're like, oh my gosh, kind of writing Miller's emotional, like, what? Well, and, and then, Julie's uh, journal entries were really haunting yeah. too because she was aware of what was going on and trying to like, and that was, it was a really nice touch that all the lights were broken and stuff, like anything that could possibly um kind of shorten her lifespan because of radiation so she's just it. sitting in the dark slowly uh, transforming into a vomit zombie which i'm just going to keep calling them vomit zombies yeah no that's perfect episode. <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's what they call them in the books so i yeah, feel like we're totally. perfectly with them. i'm sure there's another i feel like that was a really we needed a trauma situation for holden and miller to get because like miller was share. like just a guy you know, like there was no, they needed, we needed something really traumatic for them to go through that would kind of bond them, that would uh, add some emotional ties between them, or else he's just like a guy on the ship. He's not part of the crew, you know? So, I mean, let's just dig into what I think that this book is trying to explore, which is the spectrum of morality between Miller and Holden. It seems like Miller definitely has a lot of experience he's very jaded he's more of a realist he's seems like more of a utilitarian and holden is more idealistic he's he's a boy scout basically you know he's yeah. like captain america what do you think that miller did the right thing in shooting dresden i know it's a kind of a sticky question it's supposed it, to be but uh, i'd definitely is. like to to see where you're at there let me start here regardless of what I think, which I will get to, I I thought that it was the right move for the situation. Because, like, I was reading his, I mean, kudos to the authors. I don't know which one of them wrote this particular sec section, but... I think that Dresden's... Daniel Abraham wrote the Miller chapters and Ty Frank wrote the Holden chapters. Oh, in, interesting. In this, okay. in this particular book, yeah. So I think that would probably be... To, uh, that would be um, Abraham then because it was right. switched to Holden and they get there and Dresden when they find him on Thoth station after the OPA takes it over and everything he gives a very like chilling yeah. but also like it's a very logical it's logically accurate speech and all these justifications for what he did to Eros and how in the grand scheme of things it's just a blip especially compared with some historical events like Genghis Khan that was so like like mustache twirly like have you ever heard of Genghis Khan <laughs> yeah like, Genghis like, Khan oh, well, here we go here we yeah. go I mean that one wasn't the one that got it it was just the like you know, these things launched a world killing weapon at us three billion years ago. They're gods now. We need to have a fighting chance. You know, if we have any hope to have a fighting chance, we need to use this technology and master it. And if we need to sacrifice a few million people along the road of doing that, I'm like, I'm obviously, you know, the, the summary is kind of like, well, maybe not. But like the way he says it is very good. And when when I was like reading, I was like, oh man, like, what are they going to do? Like, what do they even say to that? And then when Miller shoots him, I was like, yeah, no, that, that's what you say to that. Uh, 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 and to answer your question with a, a affirmative or with one way or the other, I say, yes, he did the right thing. He was trouble. We already know he's convinced he's capable of convincing the powers that be to let yeah. him do dastardly deeds. 
he's got to go. It's funny because he has all these very pretty explanations for yes. what he's doing, but also he's he's not working with all the information here. He's assuming and speculating quite a bit. Yes, this thing was shot two billion years ago. Two billion years is an incomprehensible amount of time. That civilization right. could be completely wiped off the face of the universe. Yeah, where have they no, been? I, no, nothing at all. They haven't visited, at least to his knowledge. I think he's. I think he was using that to justify creating this priceless commodity that he could mm -hmm. then, that they could then use to basically rule the solar system with that's what i think it was so i think that miller um i'm just gonna say i think he was justified in it i think Same. like and his his reasonings for it that you know he was starting to convince all of us like we were all going to go on to his side and we know what the right thing to do here is that guy just killed a million and a half people to experiment with this protomolecule like He's got to go. Right. A trial would have just because that was Holden's thing. He's like, we need. He was he was defenseless. You know, he didn't have a gun. We weren't in a fight or anything. And it was like, he was like, he should have gone to a trial. And I was like, man, what would a trial? Have? A trial would have just made it harder, longer. No, we and all know the right answer here. Other people too. I think yeah. that's why there was that conversation between uh, Miller and I can't remember who exactly he was talking to, but that's why Miller said he was he's dangerous. He's he's got such convincing arguments that are rooted in disinformation or at least a lack of information that are rooted in obviously wrong motives. Like, I don't believe for a second that Dresden really wants humanity to thrive and do all. I mean, I'm sure he does if it benefits him, but he, he doesn't have Nobel like an Peace Prize for genetic he brilliance. He doesn't want that. I don't think that was Dresden's MO at all. I could be totally no. wrong about that, but and it's funny because there is um, there's a line that Miller says when he's talking with Fred Johnson, when he's talking with Dresden, uh, because Dresden is saying all this stuff, Miller says something along the lines of, he's, he's quoting Matthew four, nine from the new Testament. And he says, all these things you'll give me if I fall down and worship you. And that's like the last temptation of Christ or whatever. Uh, right. so like that's, that was basically, you know, the text saying, this guy's the fucking devil. Like this yeah. is at least Holden's feeling on it. It's like, you're not going to tempt me. You're not going to give me all these fancy words and all these motivations and justifications and rationalizations for killing a million and a half people. Like I understand what was going on in Miller's head. And I think that it was so like boy scoutish of Holden to just be offended about that. I mean, there's, and it, it really ties into a lot of, um, like Holden's motivations. And I would, I would argue pretty ill-advised motivations to get as much yeah, information naivet. out to every naivety. <laughs> naivety. Damn. I even was so proud of myself. Naivet. I like said it and I was oh like, I did God. it right this time. <laughs> anyway, naivety. That sounds so dumb. I think it's naivety. Anyway, it doesn't naivety. matter. Naivety. Okay, um, man. Holden, Holden has this weird habit of as soon as he gets information, blasting it out to everybody. Gosh, and, it's, and in my opinion, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely unnecessary. I mean, he, as soon as, and I understand that he was in an emotional state. He was really upset, obviously. Even the Canterbury, more of a reason uh, to not. But yeah, I mean, but you're not really thinking super clearly if you right, just right. watch like an entire ship that you were working on for like five years blow up with all your friends on it, obviously. But, you know, Miller is correct in saying we can't just blast this out to everybody look what happened and it's funny because holden is trying to do the right thing here but what happened what ended up happening because of holden twice blasting that out a 
bunch of people died. A bunch of people, yeah. this big conflict that he, he fed right into Protogen's hands by he doing gave this. The, he gave the solar system the Franz Ferdinand murder that started the whole system going into it. It was already, tensions were so high. All it needed was that little push. And him, without knowing even a quarter of the story just blasted out what he blasted out wasn't untrue but it painted a picture that, that wasn't mars true was basically attacking opa ships when it wasn't maybe mars wanted to but they weren't you know what i mean like, right. tensions were high obviously but all he did was make the tensions even higher basically start a war and I love that at the end of one of, I think it's a Miller chapter. I can't remember exactly, but um, like Miller kind of keeps something close to the vest hmm. and he's just like, see, see what I'm doing there, Holden? This is the right thing to do because we don't have right. all the information. We don't like, we need to be careful with this. You know, I mean, uh, freedom of information is important, but I feel like when there's a war on the line and there are lives on the line, it needs to be thought through much more carefully. Like, it really brings up the question like does the public deserve or have the right to know everything and it's i feel like you could argue it depends on right. whether or not it's going to start a war do you know everything <laughs> like, well here's the like, thing right is people don't like an incomplete story they don't like to not know and the easiest the best way to lie to someone is to tell them a bunch of facts that aren't complete and people will naturally fill in the gaps between those facts and connect the dots and you gave them nothing but real information and they did your work for you and are now lying to themselves because they don't like to not know and so they'll invent this whole story based off of an incomplete set of data that you've provided and that's what holden was doing every time that he released it out was like this is how this is what I know, but it was like the there was an underlining subtext of like, and it appears to be Mars, and now it appears to be Earth, and there are major consequences every time. But it's not even like a lack of information, it's the wrong information. Like Holden is literally saying Mars blew up the Canterbury, and that literally isn't what happened. I so I don't think he said that though. I think he said we found a piece of Mars transponding equipment. People say that and he like defends himself and he's like, but I did I guess you're technically right. Yeah, but, I guess yeah, technically. No, but he's... you are actually right. I'm technically <laughs> I mean, right, but I, he's actually right. Like his defense in, was ridiculous. Like in effect, that's what he did you know so exactly effectively that's what he yeah. said um and i feel like holden is smarter than that i think that uh, holden is like a really emotional person it seems like uh, which is a great character to read i can't wait to keep reading more of holden because he's a very like, selfish person too though in what way do you think uh because he didn't think he just allowed his emotions to go out he I, I don't think that commanding officer type thing to do. Yeah. Like, he, yeah. I, I don't know. He was every one of his decisions was based off of like, what do I feel like? Like, okay. He so wanted you're retribution. right. Like, okay. So now you have the best ideas, Holden. You think that your way, like you're just going to hate on him because obviously detective Miller is wrong. Like, no, that's like pretty arrogant and selfish of an opinion. He just like, I'm emotional. I'm mad. This is what I want to do and tell everybody. And like, I don't know. I feel like a lot of, what he was doing when he calmed down he like put the pretty statement of like the people's right to know but like really at the time he was like f this and like yeah i i think i see what you mean <clears throat> um, also he was raised as like an only child with like what 
three moms and like eight dads I like that's gotta that. produce i thought pretty... that was so cool me too <laughs> yeah i thought that was really cool he's very uh <laughs> i love how, like the the kind of like nods to like society has kind of like evolved and there's just different ways of doing things now um we are living very much in the future uh but also there's some there's some parallels here for sure uh that were a little bit depressing honestly to read uh it was depressing <laughs> to the the notion that once even if we colonize the solar system there's still these petty the differences that we focus on that we turn in that we turn uh, molehills into mountains about you know like the belters or this this disgusting kind of like poverty stricken like worthless part of the solar system but they're, they're like supplying ice and water to everything there's like a there's like a symbiotic relationship happening here in the solar oh, system they're a major people, source of resources but people just don't really they're you know there are plenty of people that are willing to have prejudice against other humans you know but they just look a little different they talk a little different and it just kind of bummed me out it's like man like even if we still got this going on like right damn it um and it's it's definitely interesting to look at through the lens of so much advancement technologically um but still like even on like a an interpersonal or inner community level it's still there's so many different factions of people and cultures and beliefs and stuff that while that is really awesome there's it's it's rife for conflict Human nature like is unnecessary still an yeah conflict um so yeah that was <laughs> i was just like man what a bummer <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, I, I agree, though. I did find it a little funny, maybe, maybe not funny or uh, they're like they kind of pulled the Star Wars and that like you always have like the desert planet, the ice planet, the swamp planet. It's like all one. It was like Earth totally unified Mars. Totally. There wasn't like different factions except for the belt. Like they kind of had some differences going on over there. But it was like, no, nope, definitely all of Earth versus all of Mars. And I guess. If you have planet destroying things, they would kind of unify like that. But I don't know. I just found it a little like what well, was like. Well, I mean, they might not have mentioned it, right? I mean, we're only on the first book, so there could be like yeah. multiple different factions on on these planets. And I think they said know, the that Earth, Earth is totally ruled by the UN, and maybe, maybe um, I know Earth that, and Luna, maybe. Well, one thing that I thought was pretty striking about this book, and I'm sure the rest of the series will follow suit, is that um, a lot of this seems to be controlled by different corporations. Uh, it's a very corporatized uh, solar system. I don't know if you ever played that game, um, Outer Worlds. Uh, it's like I a, didn't, but I know what it is. It's a very cool game. It's a little boring, but there's, there's like a lot of talking in it. But it's a very cool game. Um, and this idea that we have kind of expanded into space and kept our very much like corporatist ideals um at least the corporations have and uh you know the, things are ruled by the interests of these corporate entities which i think is a really big part of this book in particular is that this is a corporate entity run by this you know dresden character who's got all these justifications he's got all these reasons why everything they're doing is for the benefit of everybody but really though Vince the board I mean, really though like yeah uh i feel like yeah. it would have been handled a little bit differently they would have brought in more people onto the project if it was truly altruistic and i just don't believe that it was um, not even so kinda. obviously we have like these kind of more uh i guess for lack of a better term we have like these kind of state-run or governmental bodies that ostensibly are trying to run things in a certain like 
um, way that works for everybody, but like really, I mean, they're not. And then the, right, the, I mean, there's like these corporations that are all tied into it as well, and it's just like another thing where it's like, damn, we still couldn't get past this. Right. Um, Detective Miller really summarizes it well in his little tagline that he says throughout the book, which is, uh, you know, the belt doesn't have laws, it just has police. And it's like, man, I, I can really see that being a potentially accurate description of what a society would kind of be like in that situation. Cause he's not a policeman. They call him detective, but you know, he works for a private like, security, Star Helix security yeah. you know? And it's like, but he's a police officer. How do I say this? There's a certain kind of like togetherness about living on earth, right? I mean, we're all separated by borders and by cultures and things like that. That's a thing, but we're all on the planet, you know, breathing so the same that. air. So there's that, but then you've got, this you kind of throw a weird wrench in the gears when you've got a whole society that's living in the asteroid belt which is very far away there's an actual physical real big difference and i mean my my question is like is there a point where that difference makes them not human anymore and even if it did why would it matter you know and that's, right. that's the thing it's like this is still regardless of the size regardless of the scope, regardless of the distances between, it's still a community. Like it's still this mm -hmm. solar system community that they all have different resources and they all have different ways of relying on each other. And it's just, it sucks to see that those prejudices still exist and those um, assumptions still exist. I mean, there's multiple points in the narrative. There's mul multiple points in dialogue where, you know, it's pointed out that the belters are taller and skinnier and they've been in zero G or close to zero G their whole lives. And right, less muscle you know, density. Yeah. They're not, they're not part of earth, but there's still like that, but it's like, well, why does that matter though? Right. You know, and that's a big question. It's we can't even answer it on this podcast, but it's a no, of, of course not. Question. Besides to say that they're, of course, living, breathing, sentient, loving creatures that right. are, are exactly. obviously still human. Like, I feel like we're a long way away from being human. Like, it kind of reminds me of um, I forget the name of the tribe, but there's this tribe in Indonesia that lives like 70 to 90 percent of their lives on the water. Like their huts are on the water there and they have. Uh, over time developed lung capacity because they swim all the time. That's what yeah. they, what they do. They can, they can hold their breath for like eight or nine minutes and they can swim really deep and they're just nothing but a spear, you know? And uh, it's a similar sort of adaptation, but I do think it becomes easier to put people in a group like that when it's like, these people can't even walk on our planet without experiencing major pain, you know, and maybe thinking of them as, being less or right, whatever, just, you know, we're constantly looking it, for reasons to ostracize, alienate. Exactly. And it doesn't matter. Control. It doesn't matter. I mean, these people are contributing just as much or in much the same way, or at least to the best of their ability in most cases, like to the betterment of this whole stellar society or this uh, solar system society. Um, and yeah, we just keep dragging out conflicts and, you know, yep. like this. It's ah, it's the expanse in that we have expanded beyond our planet, but we have not expanded beyond our basic human failings. Beautifully put. Thank you. Uh, I want to move on to Miller and his, in my opinion, uh, kind of Let me odd. ask you this. <laughs> let me ask you this. <laughs> okay. Because you've been asking me, and I'm going oh, yeah, yeah, to... I know what you're yeah, going to say yeah. here, I think, because, oh, okay, I won't even say what I think. What did you think? Of Miller falling in love with Julie Mao, and okay. was it an 
would it was it an aid to the story or what what was your reaction okay so at first i was like this is dumb this is dumb i Same. what is going on here but obviously uh i read into it a little bit more got a little deeper with it and i think uh i think it makes sense so um, there's a part of the book where it sort of gets explained even, and it says something along the lines of Julie had become the part of him that was capable of human feeling and that meeting her, like he's aware that meeting her would have been a disappointment for both of them. Um, so it, it seems like Julie is like Miller's last grasp at some sort of compassion. It's like there's some part of him that knows how cruel and chaotic and horrible the universe is and it, even the galaxy that he lives in can be. And he wants to believe that there's a part of him that can maybe rise above it. Okay, yeah, like his last grasp on humanity. Do you think it was him discovering that she would have sacrificed her childhood, the razor, her mom's threatening to sell her her racing ship, the Razorback? That was the the clincher that flipped him into like, I love this person now. I think it was just a lot of little things. Okay. Um, I think, I mean, obviously him him being recently separated or divorced, I think, from his wife um probably that's like a classic kind of like you know noir detective thing like i'm ah, me and my i'm single again and i'm in my 40s and like right right ah, my job's you know. destroyed my yeah um <laughs> and i think that like it was it was a way of him kind of like sticking to some sort of compassion or some sort of humanity um i don't think it was handled like super well um i do yeah. understand that he's kind of like losing his mind throughout the the story or at least not losing his mind um you know what i mean though he's he's kind of like spiraling into more of a fantasy and less of re of reality as the story keeps going yeah and like a self-hatred almost i got kind of sick of it and i think that yeah, but i, think I that, wish like, it would have bringing... been a father-daughter not a love thing mm, interesting like romantic because yeah. it kind of and it, that was just kind of weird to me and almost creepy i just kind of i don't know I, I felt like it could have been just steered a little bit more delicately because it was just like kept being kind of pulling me out of the story and me being like okay what <laughs> yeah they, i had a couple moments like that too i mean i think that um uh sa Corey did a pretty good job at kind of like roping julie back into everything uh I, I think that if not for that i would have definitely had more of a problem with it but i think that julie actually being the person or the uh <laughs> the mind that's controlling an entire like planetoid type thing uh she has become kind of yeah that's that was cool i thought that was like a really good way of tying everything back together and then like miller's kind of in tune with it as well and has been getting more in tune with it over the course of the book because of his own experience and his own mind and stuff and it it worked and i was very yeah, ready she... to kind of like put that whole plot point aside and just be like whatever Same. the hell that is but it yeah it really they pulled it off yeah, they, they did pull it off. I mean, I definitely had an eyebrow arched in the direction of like, okay, there's like three million and she's the one because she was the first. I guess she was probably very well established first, so she kind of orchestrated it. But like, if she was orchestrating it, it's like, so she killed them all and rolled rib cages? <laughs> Whatever. Um, I, I did like how they made Julie Mao become an idea, like a, a, a little slice of the personality pizza that was hold it or that was detective miller like when he's wheeling the nuke and he like makes a joke that's really like self-deprecating and sarcastic and she's like yeah wouldn't that be great and she's like floating next to him with her hair just kind of like floating about i thought that was it was a really cool visualization yeah um i don't I, yeah by the end of the book i just didn't really have much of a problem with it but like i said i mean like uh, miller's chapters 
were very sluggish in my opinion even towards the end there were there's just like these big long paragraphs of him just kind of thinking about stuff and thinking about thinking his life about and, stuff. and that's great i'm not saying that i don't like reading those kinds of things but i think that like when we have this big climax that's happening at the very end of a 560 page book like having these big giant chapters of him just kind of thinking along like slowly to himself and kind of going crazy it's just like the actual act of reading it i was just like man we i thought we were knocking this thing into the sun like i thought we were blowing this planet out. like what's right. going on so i was kind I mean, of happy to get to those holden chapters because there was just more going on but that was just like my own personal taste um i agree completely the, end of the book you know yeah and especially it was maybe even made a little bit more pronounced by the fact that you have these chapters happening simultaneously with these flipping over to Holden and crew who are being crushed by G forces who are getting earth to stop, like, or getting Frank, Fred to take over the nuclear arsenal that earth launched that are getting in like almost firefights with other ships. Like they're very exciting things. So it might've even been like the difference between the two, you know, as good as this book is, I mean, was there anything in it that you just didn't really sit right with you or that you didn't really enjoy? Yeah, I'm glad you asked me that, actually. Because Okay, so they get done with Thoth, Thoth Station, which was one of my favorite parts. I loved the attack. I, I think I liked the aerial battle more than the actual invasion of the station. But afterwards, yeah. everyone's like hero and they're going back, except Detective Miller is holed up with Diogo, this belter kid who's awesome, by the way, but who's like 16 and he's just like slumming it and he's broke and he's just like so <laughs> sad. You and it was just get like back to Tycho station. Yeah. Like, yeah. and it finally he goes and talks to Fred to be like, can I have a job after he goes and like asks randos for like security jobs. And they're like, you're way overqualified, like investigative report. Um, what was it? Investigative research or analytics or something is on his yeah. resume. And the guy's like, well, you don't need that, man. Like anyone could do this. And it was just like, Okay, first off, he obviously should have gone and talked to Fred right away. And then second off, I kind of felt like he was kind of getting the short end of the stick by everybody uh, with any amount of power, Holden and Fred, um, to be specific, that they should have like, or at least Fred should have like taken care of him or something when they got back. Like, hey, man, where are you staying? Like to make sure that he wasn't going to be living in the dumpster. I don't know. What did you think about that part? Um, I kind of like half agree with you or I mean, I guess I mostly agree with you, but I, I see some different reasons for what was going on. I mean, for one thing, Miller is just not mentally in a very like constructive place right now. Like, I don't think he thinks much of himself, which is why, I mean, just even before all the stuff that happened on Thoth and you know what I mean? It, there's a there's a lot yeah. of things kind of like in his way as far as like progressing and lifting himself up by his proverbial Might be self bootstrapped. Um, there, so there's that. Um, I don't know how big of a part that really played into this. I mean, I think as far as him being kind of cut off from the the Rosinante crew, uh, like the crew does whatever Holden says. Right. That was you fine know? with yeah, me. That made a lot of sense. And it, yeah. it's, it sucks because there was like that really awkward conversation between Miller and Naomi and I think Amos. Yeah, he, yeah, I actually I, really like that it's conversation. It's funny that you mentioned uh, I kind of didn't like that conversation. Oh, really? That's I mean, so funny. I liked I liked that um, you know, Naomi and Amos seemed I think it was Amos seemed yeah, I liked really Amos um, and Miller. See, I didn't like Amos and Miller's conversation. It felt like kicking Miller while he was down almost. Like it felt like an unnecessary not unnecessary to write, but unnecessary 
um, in the in like the book for this for Amos to wait around and be like, let me just say one more thing. Like, you know, and it's just like, dude, he already knows that he's the why. He already knows every reason why he's not part of the crew anymore. Uh, yeah, you didn't but need I... to have this conversation. I think it was just a chance for Amos to say something. Uh, but I don't know. I just thought it was kind of a, it was almost like a wasted conversation. I th- I get where you're coming from for sure. Like he, he got it. If he, if Miller would have really stood and, and thought about it for sure, he was like a little puppy. Just like, Hey guys, how you doing over here? Like, can I have a drink with you? I'll buy you beers, even though he has no money. And then Amos just kind of, I don't know. I kind of felt like it was Amos's way of being like, I have to say something yeah. because obviously this guy was like a part of our crew and it's not so his it's call. like, I'm just going to give it to him straight. Like, I see. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as far as Fred, um, I don't know why Fred wouldn't take the initiative. Maybe Fred also didn't really know how to feel about what Miller had done. Um, but Too that's... close to the butcher of station well, past see that's the thing though it's like i don't really know much about fred and i've already i've I read the short story but i, I, I hope he's a, about that i hope he's a bigger character um because it's a little i feel like it's a little early on for me to gauge whether or not that was like in character for fred to be that hesitant to include uh, miller in anything further because uh, i i kind of agree with you that it would have made sense for fred to reach out and say like this guy's obviously a resource but maybe he's like a you know, it's, there's so many elements to it that are like lethal weapon esque, where it's just like this guy's a loose cannon. Yeah, you know? like, <laughs> we well, I mean, he's Fred, unpredictable. So Fred I get had that some too. really good reticence during that conversation when he was talking to Miller. He was like, "You know, I will be the first one to throw you under the bus. Like if Earth comes my way and Protogen start needs a if we need a scapegoat essentially for murdering the head scientist, even though they just got done like killing a bunch of scientists and like invading and the I whole know. thought. So I don't know. I was like, but that one scientist, like he was like, you know, I will throw you under the bus so fast. It'll make your head spin sort of thing. So I get it was a little more political for him, but still, like I said, his team just got done like ransacking the entire state. You know what's interesting too about that battle, if you could even call it that, was it there was a there was a certain feeling of unease, at least when I was reading it, where something didn't quite seem right. It was all way too easy, and they only had the only ammunition that they had was like non-lethal ammunition to keep their employees in line. Riot rounds. Which they, yeah, they didn't find out about that until after they had taken the station over, and so there was something like really weird about the whole situation, like that whole battle. Um, and then getting that kind of that information of like who's running this place. And I was wondering if you thought it was strange that Protogen didn't have, you know, with all the resources that they have, why wasn't there better security? Were they just not expecting anybody to find out where they were? I think they were so, I think it was a hubris kills them sort of thing. I think they were so confident in their, in two factors, one, well, three, one, the war he's like they're like everyone's so distracted right now nobody even kind of knows it's us two you know six of our ships six of these little frigates or whatever took out the donager the like head of the biggest baddest martian ship and we've got two ships there so like it's good um and three 
Oh, um, stealth. I think they just didn't know that anyone was there. I guess that's kind of the distraction one. Just two. Just <laughs> right. two, I guess. <laughs> that counts as three. Yeah, okay. Yeah, they just thought they were like so stealthy. They're like, no one knows what we're doing over here. Yeah, and kind of going back to Dresden a little bit. I mean, just the the absolute confidence that only a corrupt multi-billionaire would have. He was, he like, he, he was so calm and just... Just the way that they wrote him, the way his he was standing, like his his posture and everything about him, he it's like he was so confident that he was doing the right thing, or not even the right thing, but just the smart thing, the most advantageous thing, and that nobody could possibly understand why it was so important for him to do it unless they had heard it from him almost. Like he was right. the keeper of that information. He was it was like this esoteric shit that Everybody else was so ignorant to how powerful the the human race could be. Yeah, yeah I just uh, that, that he was so straight, creepy. <laughs> yeah, he was a straight sociopath. I mean, yeah. you know, think about it from his perspective. He's thinking he's a creature of logic, right? He doesn't have emotions. He's not thinking they're going to kill me because what I did was evil. They're thinking, okay, now they have me, which is a major asset. And logically, the best thing to do would be to use me as leverage to gain a, str a stronger position on the board, either more money, more gear, whatever, negotiating power, um, not just you're evil and need to be put down. <laughs> I, I, I laughed. I was like, yes. And then Miller, the wild card, comes <laughs> yeah. in. I've had enough. I love that scene, how they describe it, where he's like, even... As the gun was being raised to his face, he was so supremely confident until like his skull is just being blown out, you know? Speaking of um, kind of weird left turns here, I wanted to get your opinion on the very last line of the book, the very last thing in this book, which is Fred talking to this, I don't know, council of leaders of the solar system or whatever. Oh, yeah, he's making like a presentation. So maybe I'm reading into this wrong, but... He says, ladies and gentlemen, we stand at a crossroads. On one hand, there is a very real threat of mutual annihilation. On the other, he paused for effect. On the mm -hmm. other, the stars. Okay. So I haven't read too much into Caliban's War. I did read The Butcher of Anderson Station, and that gives Fred a little bit more backstory. Not a ton of backstory. It's a short story. Um, but you do see what's going on a little bit more with him. Um, is Fred going to try to use the protomolecule, protomolecule for OPA? Is that what <sighs> that meant? Because maybe I'm totally reading all the way wrong into it, but I, there's a few key words here, like mutually, mutual destruction. Was he talking about the other alien race or was he talking about the factions within this solar system? Or... And then he says I think he's talking about the, the factions within the solar system. I think it might be more likely. I mean, like Fred seems like a pretty cool guy, but, but the something stars about thing. the stars thing that was weird. That was a weird w way to end it. That was a Dresden it's like, line. It's like why multi you're, there's already there's only one star in this <laughs> solar right. system. What about these other stars? What the hell are you talking about, Fred? Right? How uh, could we do that, Fred? So. Um, I, it kind of rubbed me the wrong way, and I don't know if that's what it was intended by the end of this book, but it was a really cool last line because I was just like, what? Wait, no, Fred, no. No, no. <laughs> well, I mean, if you think about it, he's been very aggressively pursuing the proto-molecule this entire book. Like at no point yeah. was he okay with Holden 
leaving with it. But Holden kept being like, nope, it's mine. I'm taking it. And that's what yeah. he bargained to um, turn off the ship transponders, which is how they were targeting all the nukes. Also, who's got the nukes? I think it would be Mars and Earth. I don't think so. Fred took those over, right? And he um, like dragged them out in the middle of nowhere, but they didn't hit the... Well, now nobody's got nukes. Like so they just they like, shot them all into the into the void. There's like thirty thousand nukes just chilling out there. That, that is kind of an interesting thing because I think that they sent like most, if not all, of Earth and Mars's uh, nu- nuclear arsenal. It says the entire rock. Earth arsenal. <laughs> so, we, so yeah, there's even a line that says like, uh, "In one fell swoop, we managed to disarm both superpowers in the in the solar system." Which yeah, I, I don't was know really if it was cool. Mars. I think it was just Earth. Might have just been Earth. I think. Yeah, Mars, but still. Mars does have nukes, though. Uh, oh, so maybe yeah. what if they, what if they accidentally like disarmed Earth, and now Mars is the only one? Oh, jeez. Oh boy, what a mess. Uh, whatever, whoever side Fred is on, and whatever happens there, the Belters need to come together as one, not be a bunch bunch of different fra- factional OPA with different levels of extremist views. They need to like come together formulate some sort of like organization if they want to have a fighting chance you know they're just too i know violent and extreme i feel like you know uh, the 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 total idealist in me is just like why even do the why is anybody fighting at all like this i is, know it, we got out there man we got out to the other planets where we colonized everything like let's go let, let's make this a utopia but of course we can't have luxury gay space communism without <laughs> millions and millions of people dying apparently in any science fiction book right. i read like it's so and that's what i'm hoping fred the, is talking about we all need to just stop facing in and face out to the stars face the troubles and the, what's next together but I don't I personally think Fred is a little bit more snaky than than he comes off to be. I think too. he's gonna be corrupted on honestly. Me too. I got that vibe. And obviously yeah. maybe not, but um I, he's like the only potential antagonist I'm seeing right now at the end of this book. And I'm a little bit into Ka- Caliban's Ooh. war right now, but it's a six hundred page book and I haven't really I don't think it's gotten in I didn't even think about really antagonist. Huh. Right. I mean maybe the I just thought him being becoming yeah, but I, could be totally right you know it's funny we had an episode a little while back where you said something along the lines of it's so cool to have this sprawling space opera sci-fi with not even a mention of aliens and then <laughs> right know. after that episode i turned a page and it was aliens <laughs> yeah <laughs> i was like chad <laughs> i know i know but it's a very very different yeah it's a subtle form of aliens but I, and like but i wanted to ask do you, how much more present do you think uh, extrasolar beings are going to be in this? Do you think it's going to be an issue, or do you think maybe it's a um, it's almost like a paper tiger kind of thing, where yeah, aliens sent something like two billion years ago, and now the whole solar system is worked up because of something that they did, and they're not even like a thing anymore. But now it's a really big issue, just uh, in this solar system, you know. I'm going to make a prediction. Sure. Yeah, that, I think we're about there. Yeah, that at the very end of all the books, it ends with us making contact with another intelligent species, like us reaching out and it being maybe an okay thing, um, like not a violent encounter, or maybe we just like, and they went into the room to have the meeting, you know, or something like that. And I think that the all alienness proto molecule 
ooey gooey whateverness between now and then will be a focus point for the story to revolve around as to who has the queen on the chessboard. That's an interesting take. Um, I would I would say that as far as like my prediction for the the series as a whole, it <laughs> and like obviously this like I said, book one, both of us could be so wrong here. How but many books are there? Nine. nine, and that's not including all the novellas and the short stories either. Which I'm <laughs> we're totally so far. Away. I hope it's not nine books. All I know. About the we're making some pretty wild predictions here, but I think uh, the alien threat is a real one, and th- most of this series is going to be um skirmishes that are leading towards some sort of solar system unification like we're gonna see the belters and mars and earth kind of start to form together despite their differences to protect the solar system from an alien threat that would be a really cool, cool thing to happen um i agree know, it's, it's interesting uh in uh zizin lose remembrance of earth's past uh there's a significant chunk of that trilogy that's kind of it's kind of like what it's about um, it's about a lot more than that, but there's essentially like, uh, aliens are, they need a new home and they're fairly hostile and they're like, we're, we're coming, we're going to be there in 400 years or something like that. Cause, uh, you know, they need to travel here from pretty far away. And, um, a good amount of the trilogy is about, you know, how we kind of like rise and fall and kind of stumble our way toward a sort of, uh, harmony on earth for, for our own benefit so that oh, we can defend yeah so we can kind of like benefit or so we can kind of like defend ourselves in a way and i think that'd be cool on a macro scale in this series if the alien threat was actually real i don't know if that's the what i don't even know what the expanse means like maybe the expanse is the alien race maybe it's the uh, proto molecule maybe it's the um it's just a word for the expanse of the solar system that we have colonized i'm not really sure yet what that means the story feels so human to me right now. Like it's such a human story. It would I feel like it would change the the feel of it. Like and not in a bad way necessarily, but it would be I, I don't know. I just don't expect there to be like take us to your leader aliens coming in anytime soon. Maybe at the end, because there's obviously the implication, or maybe they exist in like a, a totally different way. Like a different dimension or something. Yeah, or like those ones um that were like the octopus ones that live have a different like feeling of time and that one what was that movie so oh, good arrival yeah yeah totally. something like that maybe i don't know because like i i don't necessarily think that the hurling of the proto molecule on a moon was a nefarious action necessarily Interesting. yeah and you maybe know just maybe, a seeding or maybe there is like a an actual um almost subjectively terrible faction that's going to pop up whether it be earth or mars or the opa or whatever and then the aliens come in and side with one group or something that'd be interesting oh that would be uh, interesting. what if it could was be humans 100% wrong <laughs> i've thought about that before like what if like humans just much more advanced humans came to earth and they all looked right. exactly like us and they were just like no this is the only way that that life exists we just eventually become humans you know it's right just, we're like it's Egyptian, into... <laughs> <laughs> and they're just like oh yeah we thought you would all look like octopuses too it's weird like, <laughs> we'd be so it'd be cool but also really disappointing like mm-hmm. oh wow you all look pretty much exactly the same you know all right that's cool i guess all right <laughs> yeah i'd be a little bummed they'll speak English. yeah before we wrap up here i have a few more questions for you that i just Okay, it was awesome, but I feel like it was 
it's kind of silly. Okay, the whole Nauvoo plan to just like let's take this huge ship and we're just gonna <laughs> hurl it into this other that. thing and like I don't know I like yeah I wish they would have like given me a little more of like a scientist being like hey guys the orbital um you know mechanics and if you do this and it's like can you just do that can you just I, I don't know it seems like Eros was so big like really Nauvoo would have adjusted it and i know it would circle in like it would put it on a trajectory it wouldn't just like aim it right at the sun or anything but like i i don't know it just seemed like a well let's just smash a ship into <laughs> it seemed like a ridiculous plan yeah i mean but i mean what else could they have done because like, i mean it's said multiple times in this book that if they blow it up, all it's going to do is spread right, like the a thing sneeze. out everywhere, right? Especially because it relies on radiation to grow. And so if you're sending nukes at something like that, it's not going to be a good situation. So like knocking it into the sun, when I read that, my brain went, that's stupid. And then like a second later, I was like, that might be the only actual option. The they sun have, part doesn't really get me. It's funny. just the Naboo smashing it. No, it. you're right. Yeah, knocking it in. But I mean, but everything's in a vacuum. I it mean, makes if you, sense. And that's the cool thing about these books is like, they're kind of like, how do I how do I put this? They're, they're kind of like the layman, like blue collar kind of like space okay. opera. That, that's, how, that's the vibe that's that I'm getting out of it. it. And so... And I think that even Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank, um, in the questions at the end of this book, they're even kind of like, look, we don't know like the ins and out of literally everything we're talking about. You know, like we're trying to tell a story here. It, we don't have to get into the exact velocity that this giant ship would have to hit a moon at for it to go into the sun. Like, let's just we're we're gonna try it. It's not even gonna work. Right. So what's the point? You know what I mean? Like it's it, it's just. This, the spectacle, I feel like, would almost be ruined by the specificity, you know? And so I don't really I want agree. It. There's like, do you think <laughs> that's just, cool? And like, obviously, like, yes, it's so radical. But I just was like laughing that whole time. Yeah, no, I totally see what you're saying. But it, it, it would almost be like, it almost be like talking about like the tension on the string on the scorpions in Game of right, Thrones. Right. You know what I mean? It's just like, what is it? Does it's, it, matter? it just works, yeah. you know? It's just, it doesn't need... The dragon's it. wings yeah, are big I enough mean, to hold, heft like, its body, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and that's fine. I mean, I do like technical specs, and I do... I wish almost that they would have um, kind of gone into a little bit more detail about the Epstein drive. Yeah, it, and maybe they will, obviously. But um, I, there's one thing I'm, that I don't particularly love about this book, and I hope that it kind of like evens out, is that there's a lot of jargon, like both military and spacefaring jargon, that I feel like is a little superfluous, like that doesn't really need to be there. Um, acronyms and, think, and such. Well, it's not even necessarily acronyms. It's just like terms for different things on the ship that like, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's just... This is me and my taste. And I think there is a certain immersion element there that uh, I feel like I'm watching something that's kind of outside myself if I don't quite understand like literally everything. But it's just it, it kind of just like washes into like a bunch of terminology that I'm kind of just glossing over now and then, you know, um, Tom Clancy's like, esque. Yeah, kind of just like, you know, like Holden went down the hatchway into the the, the torpedo main chamber, <laughs> like like console to, so we gotta fish the, away the, the, the fish slip, away the slip space uh, terminal <laughs> thing. and it's like wait i don't know what any of this is and um that's fine 
I guess it's it's part of the whole thing. But um, another thing, it's a fine line to walk though, because I've complained yeah. about the opposite, right? Of just like totally. I don't. How does this work? Your magic is just thinking really hard, you know. And so it's like it's definitely a fine line. And my opinion on that kind of stuff is usually in flux because of context too. Like yeah. so, depending on how engaged I am with what's actually going on. So if it's kind of like a boring conversation, and then there's some of that in there too, I'm just like, Bleh. but if it's something really awesome happening, and I don't, then I don't right. care. Hand me know? the turbo so, glockter. Yeah, <laughs> totally yeah, it's totally fine. But the only other thing about this that um, just kind of gave me pause and that I wish would have been in there is a kind of like establishing chapter that or prologue or pre-prologue or whatever that's just a foreword or something in the very a beginning that was kind of like stage yeah that was kind of just like all right it's 200 years from it's or it's like the year 2550 something and uh there are three factions uh one is the opa and i and i realized that this was done through dialogue it was done through the narrative i totally understand that and it was done really well but I think that the first like 50 to 100 pages of this book would have been a little bit less of a slog, like, or not, not really a slog, but just, you know what I mean? I would have just, I would have attached way more to what was going on if I kind of knew everything, if there had even been like a glossary yeah. in the front or something. But that's such small potatoes, you know, because I think that Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank did a fantastic job at laying everything out and making sure we kind of understood what's going on here. There was so much world to give us. I'll say two things. One, I really, one thing I did really like was, and they kind of touched on like, eh, this is how the Epstein drive works. Our mechanics are fine. Is like, there's a conversation that I believe Naomi has with Amos, or maybe it's Alex, that um, when the, um, when Aerostation moves, she was like, it did it almost perfectly efficiently. Like there was no heat loss, you know? And that's like the holy grail of machines is like converting like heat to energy and not having any loss of that, you know? And then one of them, Amos or Alex says like, yeah, well, there's still like a 200 pound megaton explosion. She's like, yeah, that's nothing compared yeah. to the amount of energy required. So like, that was like, that's, that's kind of where the line is for me. Like, okay, cool, cool. At least I'm confident that these people know the science. I don't need <laughs> to know really it, important. but they no, know for it, sure. you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then the other thing that I'll say and I don't know if you have watched, I don't think you have watched any of the show or anything, but I felt the show, I don't think it starts with a date, but definitely the first episode, the first 10 minutes is like in the future of man. Okay. Yeah. Like the space has been divided into three different civilizations. And then it like, it does exactly what you were hoping that yeah. it does like a really good job of it though. They make a bunch of little changes that I thought were stupid. So yeah. Um, I haven't watched the show uh, I think I tried watching it like years ago. I think I watched the first episode. I might have like eaten like an edible or something and Hold tried to watch it. And and I think that um, <laughs> I can't remember what it was, but something something about it. It wasn't finished or anything, and it was just it felt like a commitment to something that I just didn't really want to commit to at the time, um, which has happened with me uh, with a lot of different shows. But uh, I am planning on watching this show in its entirety, or at least whatever's available after I'm done with this series for sure, just to kind of see what the differences are. Um, I've gotten like a very kind of polarized response when I mentioned it on social media, like about the show. Like most people seem to really like the books, um, but with the show, uh, it seems like people really enjoy the first couple seasons. And then mm. I guess once it went over to Amazon, it started getting weird. But then other huh. people say that once it went to Amazon, it started getting really good. And then some people say that it's 
better than the books and some people said it was worse than the books so yeah i don't know i don't even know i've only ever believe. seen the first season i think okay yeah, and I, I remember know. it was good. I liked it better when I watched the first episode just a couple days ago because I'm seeing it through this filter now when before it was kind of like a like a biker space show. Yeah, I kind of I got Altered Carbon and The Expanse mixed together oh. for like the longest time, which is so weird because like they're obviously really different names for TV shows. But I think they came out like around the same time. And uh, Altered Carbon is uh, Richard Morgan's work. Uh, and I've heard that it's uh, those are really good books, um, but uh, mm. I don't know. I've heard like kind of the same thing with the show, where like some people really love it and some people don't. But yeah, I'll give the show a shot. If anything, just to see the visuals, I think, because it's like, like yeah. I remember when I was watching the um, episode, just the first episode uh, the other night. I really enjoyed seeing the Canterbury. I was like, oh, that that is so huge! Like they do yeah. a really good job of of scale, which was nice to see. But like, I don't know. Well, I, think I don't that's like Holden of... at all. <laughs> I think I don't know if we're supposed to like Holden. True. Maybe some people do. Maybe Boy Scouts like Holden. Like yeah, the same people Captain that America. Like, yeah, people like Superman. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think that's going to do it for us today, everybody. That was a nice long episode for the first book in the Expanse. I'm sure that we're going to have quite a few more conversations, and this is only going to get deeper. And I'm already totally in love with this. I think it's a fantastic book, uh, and I'm a little bit into Caliban's War and. Honestly, I already kind of like it more. It feels more focused. Really? It feels, yeah, it feels more like, I don't know, maybe it's just because I read the first book, but it's just, it just feels better. There's different point of view characters. It's not just Holden and then this other guy that's like Holden's foil. And you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, we, I'm ready I, for it not to be like the space team and then the guy on the asteroid who's yeah. really sad all the time. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> uh, I'm going to end with one final, like, cool question. Do you think something weird is gonna is happening on Venus? Because remember at like the very end of the chapter, they were like, there's like these two structures on Venus. Like what's going yeah, on like over there? Crystal and, that are over a, a hundred feet or a meters, yeah. maybe? I don't know. There's then, a big difference between those. Fred but... is just like bah. We'll blah, blah, blah. <laughs> at least yes. that's the vibe that I got. Yeah. I think the proto molecule has enough radiation and enough organic material to do its thing and it's going to keep doing its thing and it might manifest itself in a little bit different and i don't know if it'll be julie mao's brain or maybe a combination of miller and miller and mao but it's still doing something and it's going to be we might even forget about it with all this other drama then all of a sudden it's going to yeah. be like, like boom yeah, alien stuff again oh, i'm excited Cool. Me too. All right. That's going to do it for us today, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to our episode, recapping and discussing The Expanse, book one. Ah, Leviathan. So tasty. Yeah, I'm really excited to get to the rest of these. But for now, we're going to leave it at that. Everybody, thank you so much for listening. I uh, hope you have an awesome rest of your day. And of course, happy reading. Bye, everybody.